What do Frankenstein, Spider-Man and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have in common? Well, they're all human-animal hybrids and there's plenty more examples in popular culture. Given recent advances in science and technology, we're closer than ever before to making these mythical creatures a reality. So, what would that mean for our species? It seems time's come to ask what a hybrid future might look like for both humans and animals. Hi, I'm Aidan Radcliffe and I'm with Dr Evelyn Cetus, curator of RMIT Gallery's latest exhibition which explores our enduring fascination and sometimes revulsion with human-animal hybrids. She joins me now. Hi Evelyn. Good afternoon Aidan. It must be a bit of a different feeling. Um, your background is in communications in the gallery. And now I'm curating an <laughs> exhibition. And so that <laughs> might seem very unusual for a lot of people. But um, this exhibition is based on my PhD research. And I also, even though my PhD was in creative media, my first degree was in visual art. My aunt ran a gallery. I was arts editor at one point of the Herald Sun back in my days in journalism. So it seems a natural fit and in fact, um, as part of the PhD, I was doing a lot of blogging um, about my ideas on the hybrid and how it appeared in popular culture. And people would read it and say, hmm, that would make a good exhibition, don't you think? Um, because I'd be illustrating it with um, ideas from art and mythology that um, represented the human-animal hybrid. So that started to formulate in my mind. But yes, you're right. It is unusual when I, I decide to put the media release out and it's like, hmm, I'll better check this with the curator. Oh, hang on a minute. That be me. So yes, um, it, it's interesting to, to, to wear those two hats. And um, it's also interesting to be on the other side of the experience. So for so long, you know, I'd be berating curators about where's the image? I need a better image. Or um, when is that going to be uh, done? Can't we have this? And uh, I, I went in with this huge um, sort of a wish list of um, uh, artists and, um, and, you know, artworks. And the first thing that the uh, senior exhibition coordinator did was uh, sit me down and say, okay, so um, now we've got um, loan fees we have to uh, talk about. We uh, we have freight. So this particular work, hmm, okay, so this could cost you 20000 in freight, okay? So um, what else would you like in the show? Just that work or something else? And, uh, and so, you know, when you're doing a PhD, it's very easy to just um, surf around, you know, sort of, um, databases and say, hmm, now that image represents what I want. And, and really, unless it's for publication, it's going to such a small audience that you just really need to credit the work and you, you don't need to jump through all those copyright hoops. But, but the minute, of course, it goes into the public world, it's a different matter. And uh, of course, the minute that uh, you decide to put an artwork in the gallery and decide that, hmm, why not have it from um, a Russian museum? And then you're told about the freight um, and about you know how hard it might be to get that loan you think well maybe if we look closer to home is there another way of telling this story is there another work we can use and by gosh of course there is you know of course local artists will be doing that and of course artists all around the world will be doing interesting things so it's a matter of whittling down those ideas and uh, and finding what works logistically as well as thematically so that's really exciting 
the topic of human and animal hybrids, I was thinking to myself, it's not something I've, I've come across before, but the more I've been thinking about it, the more I've realised just how prominent this is in our society. Obviously, the exhibition is to commemorate 200 years since the release of Frankenstein. Was it reading Frankenstein that got you thinking about human-animal hybrids, or how did this idea come into your head? Okay, so, you know, people have been asking me this, and to me it, it always seemed very natural, and people say, how did you come up with the idea of a human-animal hybrid? But then, you see... I feel in, in some ways I'm a cultural hybrid myself because my, my background is both Greek and Baltic German. So from the Greek side of the family, um, I was very close to my grandfather, my papuli, and he would uh, do that wonderful uh, Greek oral um, history tradition of telling me stories, you know, and I'd spend weekends, you know, at his place with my yaya, my grandmother, and uh, she'd sit and knit while he would tell me these amazing stories from the village of the the, the Rikolakis, you know, the sort of the Greek vampire and all these sorts of things. And and uh, fascinating stories. And on the other side, I spent an equal amount of time with my Omi or my German grandmother. And uh, she would read me, of course, tales from the Brothers Grimm. Now, Grimm fairy tales, as we know, are very grim, in fact. Cautionary, moralistic tales, darkly gothic, as is uh, a wonderful children's book called Destruvelpeter. And uh, in this, um, children had awful things happen to them if they misbehaved. Um, like the little boy who sucked his thumb and then a man came along with a big pair of scissors to cut his thumbs off. I mean, it was that sort of... <laughs> Mind you, I tried reading them to my young son when uh, when he was little and he turned around and said, as a millennial would do, it's a form of child abuse, take it away. <laughs> but I grew up on these stories. And uh, and so to me, those, those, um, those ideas weren't that fanciful. As a teenager, when I was reading Frankenstein, um, when I was reading um, H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau, um, and, and these were all um, stories that stayed with me and found their way into popular culture as well. So people say, hmm, um, you don't see many human-animal hybrids around. And I say, well, what about Spider-Man? What about Batman? What about Catwoman? The Wolverine, let's bring it up to contemporary times. You know, these are all you know, part of an enduring legacy of a fascination with the merging of the human and the animal. And in fact, it continues to astound and surprise me how long this goes back. Um, I was working with a curator from um, Germany on one exhibition. And, uh, and when I uh, was travelling overseas to present uh, some of my research at a conference and he, of course he, he knew what my research was about when I visited him in uh, Ulm in, uh, in Germany in Bavaria he said to me um, you must come and see this and he, he led me to a part of the museum and showed me something I'd never seen before which was Lion Man and Lion Man is the earliest known figurative art work and it is of a lion and man merged into one and someone had spent what they estimate as a couple of months carving this out of ivory and it's an it's maybe 40,000 years old and you know that's a work of art that someone has bothered to actually make in between going out and slaying woolly mammoths and whatever. Um, and why? We don't know why, obviously. But um, perhaps uh, someone thought, well, that man has a strength of a lion or I'd like to have the strength of a lion. These are all part of, uh, of, of that legacy, aren't they? It's about what is that animal part of ourselves that we deny? Mind you, we are animals ourselves, aren't we? Of course. Uh, the, the human is a, a non-human animal. You know, I mean, sorry, there are non-human animals and then there, there are the humans, but we are animals as well. And we do try and deny this all the time. I mean, we have this contemporary uh, obsession over the last, I'm not sure, 10 years of 
making sure we have no body hair whatsoever. You know, this this idea of mm, let's pretend we're really not hairy. You know, um, but uh, you know that's that's not the case. You know, we we can't really deny who we are as animals. I've also found, and it's astounding when you start thinking of this stuff, even the traits of animals that we try and incorporate to benefit from. I bought a new jacket the other day filled with duck down. So it's using a, a benefit of being a duck, keeping warm, and we're taking that and using it in our own fashion as well. Where did you get most of your inspiration from? You mentioned that you did see some artwork that was thousands of years old. Where was some of the more contemporary inspiration sourced okay. from? Yes, sure. So um, when I was um, doing my um, master's, so I did both my master's and PhD at RMIT and I was doing my master's in creative writing and I was really interested in um, the scientifically created human in science fiction and at that point I actually hadn't thought of human animal although it's always been swirling around in my head um, but um, one of the things I did was um, I was obviously spending all of my time at RMIT library and they've got this wonderful special collection section. And I went in and um, I had a look and they had um, a, a huge box full of these most amazing etchings. And it was the PhD, and I saw it was the master's research of um, a printmaker at uh, the university, Yasmina Sinanus, and it was on her girly werewolf project. And it was just amazing because, um, like me, Although she um, she comes from that um, sort of um, I think um, sort of um, a Baltic background, and uh, she was tying that um, you know the natural world and mythology and those ideas of uh, werewolves and women um, into her work, and those images I just thought were just astounding. And uh, and so Yasmina is in my monster, of course, and uh, I thought that was very exciting. So those sort of images started to come to me, and um, I just started to think, well, you know. What a great idea this, this is. But when I started doing my uh, PhD, I was looking at um, literary case studies, textual case studies. Uh, one of those was Frankenstein. And, I mean, people don't necessarily always think that Frankenstein was made out of both human and animal. But, um, you know, um, Dr. Frankenstein constructed an eight-foot creature because it was too hard to work on something that was sort of small. And uh, as part of that, he found uh, the parts in... Um, in uh, graveyards, in dissecting rooms, and also slaughterhouses. So slaughterhouses are not filled with human parts. <laughs> They're filled with animal parts. And I started to sort of uh, research and sort of feel that, you know, why on earth uh, do we, um, are we so revulsed, repulsed by him? And that was, I think, because of this inherent repulsion we have with that animal side of ourselves and the fact that he was made of, of animal as well as human. That sort of made everyone stand back and go, this is not right. This is not how someone should look. And uh, and so, you know, one of the things that uh, popular culture does in cinema is, uh, you know, the, the loves to um, explore these uncanny and gothic ideas in horror movies. And, of course, you know, Frankenstein has been um, revised time and time again in many different ways, as has the idea of the human-animal hybrid. In fact, we've got a showreel trailer that I've put together for the exhibition, which looks at about 30 or 40 different films. And so you can sit there till your heart's content <laughs> watching these trailers over and over again. And uh, there were even some things that uh, I had missed. Uh, one of the artists said to me, oh, I suppose you're going to be having that, that very odd movie, Tusk, in. And I said, Tusk? What, what's that movie? She said, oh, you know, that one where, directed by Kevin Smith where that guy turns someone else into a walrus. 
and I went, how did I miss that? Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it is black and bizarre, but very wonderful. Evelyn, would you say that the exhibition is a celebration of the human-animal hybrid or more of an observation? No, it's a celebration, but it is also a celebration that um, is very um, not shying away from exploring um, you know, um, some serious issues in animal studies, in, in, in animal rights, and also women's studies. And there's a strong connection between the treatment of animal and the treatment uh, animals and the treatment of women um, and a sort of violence against uh, both of those bodies and uh, so perhaps it's no surprise to find that um, it was women who were suffragettes who um, who were the ones who spearheaded the movement against vivisection in Victorian England and, um, and uh, made sure a lot of those laws uh, for the protection of animals came into place because they could very much see that, um, in fact, it, it, and it's true that um, there were animal rights before there were rights for women. And, uh, and so that that, that sort of um, strong connection is there. All of the artists, I would say, um, in one way or another, have um, an interest, a concern in the rights of, uh, of animals as well. And so um, that idea of if we're going to be using something like Zeno's transplantation, which is on the horizon, which is animal parts that have been um, transgenically modified uh, to go into human bodies because of the organ uh, shortage, um, then um, what we don't talk about is that there is going to be an animal sacrifice, obviously, you know, that um, it's how we use animals for different things. And um, another side of this too is that uh, my research looked at the the, the unique life cycle, if you like, of the human-animal hybrid. So it has a, a, a different way of uh, being alive and, and living in fiction, obviously, to the human. And that is because of the way it was constructed, it was made. So the minute something is um, constructed or made and not naturally born, there is an idea of commodification. There is an idea of ownership. If I make something, then I own it. And if I own it, and if I own that, then you are my slave. And I can do anything I want with you. And I can make you um, work. I can destroy you. I can um, use you for all sorts of nefarious activities. Uh, I can use you as a sexual slave, uh, all sorts of things. And so um, those issues of animal rights and hybrid rights really do find their, their way into this exhibition as well. What were some of the challenging aspects of putting together the exhibition? I guess, um, you know, I would say every curator would say it's um, it's mm, perhaps um, curbing your ambitions and uh, and putting your expectations uh, together into a budget and a time frame and logistics. So, of course, there were so many um, other artists I would have loved to have uh, been in the show or many uh, more works in the show to the point where um, Helen Raymond, who's our senior exhibition coordinator at the gallery, would just walk past and say, where's it going to go? Or freight, freight, <laughs> freight. <laughs> I, sort of, I, I sort of wake up in the night thinking freight. And uh, you're right, it, it costs so much to even pack up and send one work um, because, you know, things have to be taken care of. 
Um, and of course, you know, we have to make sure that we display things well. And uh, and a, I guess um, a gallery is a, a theatrical environment in a sense. You want people to have amazing experience. And one of those things that I really wanted to do was uh, explore not just visual art, but sound art as well. And so when you walk into the gallery, there is um, a transitional work by uh, a sound artist uh, who did her PhD at RMIT, Catherine Clover. And that is a work which combines both human and animal voices. And, uh, and uh, so you walk into that and you see the glass doors of the gallery open and there are those, those, um, those words that are both human and bird words because birds, of course, you're talking about the down jacket, uh, mimicry, you know, birds sort of mimic a human voice. And, uh, and I think that is very interesting. There is a, um, another a work by um, an RMIT uh, um, a staff member and graduate, Darren Verhagen, and uh, his group at RMIT, 20 Hertz. And you walk into this space and it shows you the umwelt or the environment, the world of the animal. And, uh, and, we, re- and we realise then we actually hear and see so little of the, wor- the world compared to what an animal sees uh, and can hear. So um, we, we do covet an animal's, say, X-ray vision, you know, be able to see in the dark, being able to sense heat, being able to sense um, sort of the, polar- um, the, um, the polarity in the world and those fields. And actually that's how anim- uh, birds sort of navigate flight and things like that so I wanted that people to experience that and there is another amazing uh, work called Fur Can't Fly and this is by um, sort of theatrical burlesque artist um, Moira Finnecane and she's worked with a sound artist so you sit in this uh, chair and it starts to vibrate and you listen and you're transported as well as lights flash in your eyes and it's like the sensation of flight because don't we all want wings? It's that envy, isn't it? We almost envy these parts we of do. animals. We do. I think it's an envy of what we've lost as uh, as humans. Um, you know, we can't run, we can't jump that well, um, and we can't fly. You know, that's uh, another wonderful Greek myth of Icarus and his father who tried to escape the island they were on by making wings, strapping it to themselves and flying. But, of course, Icarus flew too close to the sun and his wings melted and he was killed when falling to earth. It's clear that you're really close to this topic and the artists are really close to this topic. How do you, and speaking as a, as a communicator as well, how do you bridge the gap between people who may not feel as, as close to a, um, to a topic such as human-animal hybrids and trying to encourage them to come and experience the art? I think um, we've had such um, an amazing response on social media so far of people sharing and liking and just... Um, getting very excited about the show that I think uh, this is one of those shows that actually does um, cross boundaries. And so um, one of the things that's been a challenge was taking, um, a, say, a 70,000-word academic dissertation and um, my sort of many years of presenting this uh, research at um, academic conferences and in peer-reviewed journal articles and, um, and then going, hmm, when Helen Raymond, again, the exhibition coordinator, read the first draft of my wall text, went, I don't understand this. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? And I went, hmm, okay, I'll take a step back and, uh, and let's look at it again and let's try to make this a story for everyone to enjoy. 
And so that's what I'm doing. And, uh, and so bridging that gap has been about telling a story for a general audience and, uh, and making that clear for a general audience. And part of that has been having the showreel trailers, has been having things like uh, the, the flying chair, if you like, and, uh, and the, the sonic room where we can experience these ideas. That these um, artists that I have and a lot that have come through RMIT have been engaged in serious research in these areas. But um, part of um, our job as academics is to make sure it can go into the wider community. Otherwise, what sort of impact does it have? So being able to talk about our work and being able to translate it to a broad audience is as important as uh, getting a citation in an academic paper. And, you know, I think, um, I think it, it all comes down to storytelling. I think that's the important part. And uh, let's not forget that we're celebrating 200 years of a book that was written by a teenage girl. I mean, she was an extraordinary girl, Mary Shelley, but she was still only 19. But she had experienced the death of many children by then. And she'd had a stillborn child. She'd had miscarriages, um, all sorts of things. So she was not a sort of a 19-year-old just posting on Instagram, sitting in her family suburban home. She'd led an extraordinary life, um, but uh, she also merged together a lot of really interesting and dark ideas about science and about death and about life um, that were going on around her. And she then translated that into a story which we still find compelling today. Throughout your research and also in putting together this exhibition, what's been the main learning for you? I guess the main learning has been how um, broadly one can look at a topic that I started doing. When, when you're doing a PhD, the idea is to go so narrow into something and, uh, and you think about what your contribution to research is going to be at the, at the end of the four years. And as long as you can incrementally push it along, just a nudge, um, just a small little bit and fill in some gap somewhere, um, that's a success. And what I've learned is that you can take this and translate it, this into a much broader, broader vision. Okay, so that what you learn, and people are always saying, in fact, when I started the PhD, I was wondering how I could possibly do the PhD full time while working as a communicator full time. And I consulted lots of people. And uh, one said, oh, you'll be fine. It's not like you're doing research into something real, is it? And <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, regardless of, of whether we're talking about um, a fictional construct or something else, um, you know, the hybrid is very real in the imagination of, of culture. And uh, obviously, uh, if we look at the 40,000-year-old Lion Man in Germany, um, we can see how real it is. So I guess it's about um, finding what is important in your research and uh, and putting it into a broader area and knowing that that it is possible to translate that. Evelyn, it's been fantastic talking to you. Just before we finish up, is there anything else that we can look forward to about the exhibition? Definitely, because uh, what I have is a wonderful installation based on a very early piece of fake news. And it's about Mary Toff, a woman who cashed in on what the doctors thought of as um, maternal imagination. And this was the idea that women could actually create monsters simply by thinking about something. And uh, this actually persisted even up for a long time. I've actually found a textbook that was republished in the 60s, which talks about this. So what she managed to do was convince um, the king's physician that she'd given birth to rabbits. 
And in fact, he was so taken in on this, he even wrote a paper saying he delivered the 15th rabbit. So it is bizarre, but um, it's, it's wonderful and uh, it's very gothic as well. An early example of fake news. If there's no other reason to go along and see My Monster, the human-animal hybrid, it is at the RMIT Gallery from the 29th of June right through until the 18th of August. Evelyn Sitters, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you.